Following the Civil War and the subsequent abolition of slavery in 1865, the American South found itself in an unusual position. It had become dependent on slave labor. The fields and plantations that were the backbone of the southern economy also had their own backbone, the blood and sweat of the black laborers who had worked them. However, upon gaining freedom, understandably, many freed slaves made it a point to avoid plantations at all costs, often migrating to the north or seeking non-agricultural work. So the plantations needed workers. And in New Orleans, one notable solution to this was Italian immigrants, specifically Sicilians. Beginning in the 1860s as a slow trickle, by the 1880s the city's influx of Italian immigrants had grown to a cascade. In search of better lives and new opportunities, and an escape from the poverty that constrained them in their homeland, Sicilians arrived in New Orleans in droves. By the 1920s, somewhere in the ballpark of 100,000 Sicilian immigrants had made their way to New Orleans, many of whom eventually moved on to new locations or made their money and returned home. But many of them stayed as well. And this hard-working bunch of Sicilians turned out to be the perfect replacements for the newly vacated labor positions on southern farms. They were hardworking and industrious, and coming from little, they had few qualms with the difficulties of plantation life. For the most part, the Sicilians were accepting of and amenable to the bleak, grueling life of being a plantation laborer, suffering through the difficult work in hopes that the income would allow the opportunity for better circumstances in the future, perhaps the opportunity to open a business. Among those who did exactly that was Joseph and Catherine Maggio. Joseph and Catherine Maggio lived on the quiet corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets in New Orleans, Louisiana. Their neighborhood was a quiet one, and surprisingly underdeveloped for its proximity to New Orleans. About two miles west of the city's famed French Quarter, it was a mostly residential neighborhood with a relatively large Italian immigrant population. The couple, themselves Italian, shared a duplex with Joseph's brother Andrew, who resided in the apartment adjacent to theirs, and together, Joseph and Catherine Maggio ran a grocery store that was attached to their home. A very common setup for the time. Early in the morning on May 22, 1918, Andrew Maggio awoke to a strange sound bleeding through the walls of his bedroom. He lay awake in bed, unsure of what exactly he was hearing, and he listened. And before long, he heard it again, a low, raspy groan unlike anything he had ever heard before. The sound seemed to be emanating from the wall that he shared with Joseph and Catherine, on the other side of which was their bedroom. Andrew, confused as to what he was hearing and what, if anything, he should do, gave the wall a sharp knock and waited for a response. But his concern grew after several seconds passed and he got none. Finally, Andrew became overwhelmed with a feeling that something was wrong that something terrible had happened to his brother and his wife on the other side of the wall. So he quickly threw on some clothes and scampered a few houses down the street to awaken his other brother, Jacob, who lived nearby. Andrew woke Jacob, explained the situation, and together the two brothers hurriedly returned to their third brother's home to investigate the source of the sound and Andrew's uneasiness. Like many Italian grocers and other store owners of the time, Joseph and Catherine Maggio's shop sat at the front of their home, with their living quarters tucked away behind it. As such, upon their arrival, Andrew and Jacob quickly made their way around the back of the home to enter their brother and sister-in-law's living quarters. And it was there that it immediately became clear that something 
was wrong. The kitchen door sat ajar, with one of its panels peeled off and sitting on the ground nearby. The brothers gently pushed the door open and slowly, almost hesitantly, made their way to the bedroom, fearing what they might find inside. And sadly, their fears were well-founded. The brothers arrived at the bedroom door and slowly pushed it open, and when they did, the scene that lay before them was far worse than anything that they could have possibly imagined. The bedroom was drenched in blood, and inside lay Joseph and Catherine, both of whom's head and neck areas were severely damaged. Catherine lay motionless on the floor beside the bed, while Joseph remained on the bed, his feet hanging off the edge, and amazingly, still showing some signs of life. Only moments later, New Orleans police received a frantic call from Andrew Maggio. Come at once, the man pleaded over the phone, exclaiming that his brother and sister-in-law had been attacked. And by the time the authorities arrived, Joseph was no longer breathing, and both he and Catherine were declared dead at the scene. As the investigation began, it was determined that their throats had been slashed by a straight razor, like the kind commonly used by barbers of the time. And then, both of their heads had been savagely bludgeoned by an axe. In the apartment, the police discovered a set of discarded clothes, presumably belonging to the killer, who likely changed into a clean set following the murder. An axe, stained with blood, was discovered in the bathroom. As it turns out, the axe belonged to Joseph and Catherine, and was likely picked up by the killer upon entering the house. As the investigation continued, a collection of peculiar details began to be revealed. It was determined that nothing had been stolen from the property, leaving detectives stumped as to the motive behind the vicious attack. About a block away from the Maggio home, investigators noticed an odd message scrawled on the sidewalk. The message read, Mrs. Joseph Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Now, this was an interesting message. Over the years, a story has evolved that ties this message to a string of similar murders seven years prior in which three families of Italian grocers were also murdered with an axe. And there are some reports that one of those families was that of a Tony Chiambra and his wife, aka Mrs. Tony. And these reports are halfway accurate. In May of 1912, Tony and Joanna Chiambra were murdered in their sleep, and they were Italian grocers. On top of that, there was a string of axe murders in New Orleans around the same time, and some of the victims were also Italian grocers. However, Tony and Joanna Chiambra were shot to death. There is no axe involved, and it is unclear exactly what was meant by this morbid message scrawled on the sidewalk. And finally, there was one last piece of evidence discovered that turned the investigation on its head. On the afternoon of the second day of the investigation, the barber's blade used to kill Joseph and Catherine was discovered poking out of the side of a rose trellis in the family's neighbor's yard, as if it had simply been carelessly thrown away following the murder. The tortoise-handled stainless steel blade was still stained with dark, dried blood. And in a surprising twist, the blade was determined to belong to none other than Andrew Maggio, who ran a barber shop. This, coupled with the fact that Andrew was the one who had discovered the victims, yet hadn't heard the actual attack happening, made him a prime suspect. However, Andrew had an alibi, and another witness eventually came forward, claiming to have seen a mysterious figure lurking around the Maggio home on the night of the attack. 
so Andrew was eventually cleared. The killer, however, was never found. And over the next two years, they would strike many more times, killing many and thrusting the Italian immigrant community of New Orleans into a state of constant fear that they would be the next victim of the mysterious killer. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello, I am PJ, and this is episode 31 of Simply Strange. Thanks for stopping by. Okay, so really quickly before we get into this week's episode, I just have one really quick message or thought or request. Earlier this month, Simply Strange was a featured podcast on Podbean, so thanks Podbean for that. You guys are wonderful. And as a result of that, we had a pretty significant spike in downloads and hopefully a bunch of new listeners are tuning in for this episode. So I would just like to welcome aboard anyone who recently discovered Simply Strange. Thanks for checking out the show. And also, I haven't said this in a while, but if anyone, new listener or old, knows someone who might like the show, let them know. Text a link, post on social media, whatever works for you. I want to keep growing the show. And if you enjoy Simply Strange and want to help out, word of mouth is 100% the best way to do it. Okay, so that's it for the self-promotion segment of the show, and now it is time for our story. This week, we are getting a little bit true crimey, and we will be telling the story of the Axeman of New Orleans. Following the murder of the Maggios, New Orleans was in a great state of unease. They could still recall the horror of the string of similar axe murders several years prior, and fear permeated the city that, perhaps, the same ruthless killer had returned. And given that the primary target seemed to be Italian immigrants, this sense of dread doubly impacted the Italian community. Rumors began to spread that a manic murderer was on the loose with a vendetta against Italian grocers or perhaps that the Italian Mafia was behind the killings. And unfortunately, their fear was very well-founded, because before too long, the Axeman of New Orleans would strike again. About a month after the murder of Joseph and Catherine Maggio, in the early morning hours of June 27, 1918, Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, became the Axeman's next victims. Interestingly enough, while Bessemer and Lowe were not of Italian descent, they were still grocers. Just like the Maggios before them, Bessemer and Lowe were attacked in their sleep with their own axe, and nothing was stolen. However, unlike the Maggios, both managed to survive the attack, although Lowe died a little over a month later, following an attempt to surgically repair her partially paralyzed face resulting from the attack. On August 5th, 1918, the Axeman struck again, 
This time, the victim was 28-year-old Anna Schneider, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Again, the killer utilized instruments found around the victim's home to carry out the attack. This time, viciously striking the woman in the head with a lamp. Just like in previous attacks, nothing was stolen, and amazingly, Anna, who was eight months pregnant, not only survived the attack, but gave birth to a perfectly healthy baby girl, just two days later. Then, only five days after the attack on Anna Schneider, the Axeman struck yet again. This time, it was Joseph Romano who suffered the wrath of the Axeman. Joseph was an elderly man who lived with his two nieces. In the early morning hours of August 10th, 1918, Pauline was awoken from a frightening commotion coming from her uncle's room, shortly followed by a dreadful, agonized groan. The startled girl bolted upright in bed, only to be greeted by a sight straight out of a nightmare. Just in front of her, framed by their bedroom doorway, was the silhouette of a tall, heavy-set man in a dark suit and a slouch hat. Pauline screamed, awakening her sister Mary, and then the figure vanished. Moments later, the girl's uncle came staggering into the room, his head bleeding profusely. He was just barely able to murmur instructions for the girls to send for an ambulance, and then he passed out. A short while later, Joseph Romano was dead, murdered with his own axe, and the killer, yet again, had vanished without a trace. Following Romano's death, things were quiet for a little while, about seven months to be exact. But sadly for the people of New Orleans, the peace would not last. On the morning of March 10th, 1919, on the corner of Jefferson Street and 2nd Avenue in Gretna, a quiet suburb just across the winding Mississippi from New Orleans, residents were suddenly and unceremoniously startled from their slumbers as a blood-curling scream tore through the neighborhood. The scream was coming from the home of Charles and Rose Cordomiglia. Startled neighbors stumbled to their front doors to assess the source of the commotion, and it didn't take long for it to make itself apparent. The door of the Cordomiglia family's home burst open, and a neighbor woman threw herself out of it, screaming for help, screaming that Charles and Rosie Cordomiglia, as well as their young daughter, had been murdered. Hearing the commotion, another neighbor, Orlando Giordano, as well as his 18-year-old son, Frank, rushed through the back alley that separated their home from the Cordomiglia's grocery store and home, and entered the family's residence through the kitchen door at the back of the building. The pair quickly made their way to the bedroom, where a small crowd had already begun to gather, and upon arriving, they were greeted by a truly terrible sight. The room was disheveled and drenched in blood. On one side of the room was Charles, bleeding profusely but still alive, and barely conscious. Across the room lay his wife, also desperately clinging to life, as blood poured from a devastating wound to her head, and in her arms was the lifeless body of their infant daughter, Mary. Seeing that both Charles and Rosie were teetering on the edge of death, Iorlando and Frank Giordano acted quickly, mobilizing the small gathering of neighbors that had accumulated in the bedroom, and calling for a doctor to be sent for and the police to be alerted. And their quick actions may have saved the Cordomiglia's lives. Charles and Rosie were ferried across the Mississippi River to a waiting ambulance in New Orleans, and rushed to the city's charity hospital, 
where they both miraculously managed to survive their devastating injuries. Their story, however, was only just beginning. Immediately following the attack, an investigation began. It was determined that the assailant had carefully removed a panel on the back door of the home, entered through the kitchen, and made their way to the bedroom. Their weapon of choice, just as was seen in the growing list of similar attacks succeeding this one, was an axe that belonged to the victims, which was found tossed aside on the back porch of the home. Now, it may be obvious to us today that this attack bears a startling resemblance to the string of attacks that came before it, and that the killer could very well be the same person. But this was a hundred years ago now, and the term serial killer didn't even exist yet. Fortunately, the New Orleans Superintendent of Police, Frank Mooney, did suspect that the attacks were connected, and that the city of New Orleans may have had a serial killer on their hands a murderous degenerate who gloats over blood, as he put it. However, across the Mississippi River in the town of Gretna, the authorities were not quite as savvy. They believed that this was an isolated incident, perhaps a business dispute, and as the investigation continued, two people in particular found themselves at the top of the suspect list, Iorlando and Frank Giordano the father-son pair of neighbors whose quick reactions may just have saved the lives of both Charles and Rosie Cortemiglia. And to make matters worse, when Rosie Cortemiglia came too, she immediately accused Iorlando and Frank Giordano of being the killers. And with the two families being rival grocery owners, the pair seemed like logical suspects, at least to the Gretna police. While her husband vehemently denied her claims, Iorlando and Frank were arrested and charged with murder. Iorlando was sentenced to life in prison, and Frank was to be hanged. However, nearly a year later, Rosie eventually admitted that she had falsely accused the Giordanos, and they were both released from prison. And the Axeman was still at large. After the attacks on Charles and Rosie Cortemiglia, the Axeman seemed to vanish for a span of a couple of months. But despite there not being any actual attacks, the Axeman still made a significant impact on the people of New Orleans by way of fear, and the constant nagging concern by any given person that they and their families could be the next victim. Many families, especially in the Italian community, slept in shifts with someone standing by, armed and on guard at all times in order to ensure that they would not become the next victims. Meanwhile, the police were no closer to uncovering the identity of the Axeman. Following nearly every attack, a new suspect would emerge. But without fail, these new suspects would be cleared, and investigators would find themselves no closer to taking the killer down. And then, to their dismay, in March of 1919, the Axeman of New Orleans emerged from hiding. But oddly, this time, it wasn't in the form of a grisly murder. 
but instead in the form of a letter sent to the local newspaper, the Times-Picayune. The letter is an interesting one. It read as follows. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise, and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether region that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy, the Axeman. Now, while the letter is certainly a little bit on the dramatic side, maybe even a little bit cheeky, by this point the New Orleans Axeman had built enough of a reputation that people listened. If his requirement to not brutally murder anyone was for the people of New Orleans to jazz it out, as he put it, then they were going to jazz it out. And on the night designated by the Axeman, jazz it out they did. The streets of New Orleans filled with the swing of jazz music, as every bar and club and home seemed to have a band book, and throngs of people sought entry into the packed, jubilant safety of their favorite bars, and presumably, as they did, they were joined by the night's fearsome instigator, as the dreaded Axeman wandered the streets of New Orleans, enjoying the jazz music that he was so fond of. 
but also keeping a weather eye out for anyone unfortunate enough to have not heeded his demands. Despite the morbid reason behind the festivities, it was a night for the ages, and most importantly, it would seem that the Axeman was satisfied, because on that night, there was no attack. In the months that followed, there would be four more attacks by the Axeman. On August 10th, a grocer by the name of Steve Boko was struck on the head and knocked unconscious. However, a short while later, he regained consciousness and was able to solicit help from a neighbor. Despite his head being cracked open, Steve Boko survived his encounter with the Axeman. On September 2nd, William Carlson, a pharmacist, awoke in the night to a strange scratching sound coming from the back door of his home. Fearing the worst, the man grabbed his gun and rushed to investigate the source of the disturbance, only to find a man at the entrance to his home, fiddling with the door panels. He fired several shots, and the man immediately darted off into the night, leaving behind a chisel and an axe. On September 3rd, Sarah Lauman, a young woman who lived alone, was attacked as well. The Axeman entered her apartment through an open window and struck her with an axe, leaving her with a severe head injury and several missing teeth. Amazingly, Sarah survived the attack, however, she could not recall any of its details. Another attack occurred on the night of October 27, 1919, when Mike Pepitone was attacked and killed by an axe-wielding intruder. Despite his wife and his six children being present in the home as well, no one else was injured, and no one got a good enough look at the attacker to describe him. Mike Pepitone is the last alleged victim of the Axeman of New Orleans. Following his murder, the cloud of fear that loomed over the people of New Orleans slowly but surely began to lift, and as life in New Orleans returned to normalcy, the investigation into who exactly the mysterious Axeman was continued. One of the most difficult things to contend with when assessing this case is that, for many of the victims, there were people of interest who were investigated. Rival store owners, family members, known burglars, and various other connections. However, each suspect was eventually cleared, and ultimately only served to muddy the waters when it came to the investigation. With no reliable witnesses, no suspects, no fingerprints, or evidence of any other form, the authorities had very little to work with during their investigation, and the identity of the Axeman of New Orleans has never been found. There are, however, a number of very interesting theories. Given that so many of the victims were of Italian descent, one suggested explanation is that the Mafia was involved, that perhaps the victims had made enemies with the wrong people, and the attacks were the result. However, if this is the case, then there is no real evidence to support it. Many skeptics of this theory also assert that the Mafia had very strict rules in place condemning the harm of women and children. However, 
Several of the victims were women and children, plus four of them weren't even Italian. So the mafia angle has its problems. While no one was ever formally convicted of the crimes committed by the X-Man, there is one name in particular that has made its way to the top of the list of suspects behind the X-Man murders, Joseph Mumphrey. As the story goes, following Mike Pepitone's murder by the X-Man, his wife, Esther Albano, moved to Los Angeles, where about a year after her husband's murder, she shot and killed a man named Joseph Mumphrey. Now, some of the details here are pretty blurry. Well, a lot of them, actually, are extremely blurry. I've seen reports that the man broke into her home and was robbing her, and I've also seen reports that they were simply walking the streets of LA and she shot him. But whatever the case, during her trial, Esther Albano claimed that Mumphrey was a hitman for the mafia, that he was the man who killed her husband, which by extension made him a likely candidate to be the infamous X-Man of New Orleans. And there was, in fact, a Joseph Monfrey living in New Orleans at the time who was known to have some mafia involvement and was in and out of prison during the 1910s. Interestingly, his time out of prison matched up rather conveniently both with the Axeman attacks in the 1918s and 1919s, but also the earlier string of attacks referenced in the note scrawled on the sidewalk. It is a fascinating story, convincing even. But it also might not be true. In more recent years, the story has been put under intense scrutiny, and some claim that it may not have even happened, and that this supposed Joseph Mumphrey may not have even existed. It has been proposed that this case has been mixed up and falsely attached to a similar murder that happened in Nevada that had nothing to do with the Axeman. In the end, the documentation just isn't there to support this theory. Accounts of the murder are varied and ultimately seem to involve more guesswork than anything else. And the Joseph Mumphrey angle suffers from the same guesswork, and unfortunately will most likely remain nothing more than an interesting story. It's also possible that there is more than one X-Man of New Orleans. Perhaps some of the killings were merely copycats. Or maybe the truth lies in all of these theories somehow. Maybe some of the attacks were carried out by the Mafia. Maybe Joseph Mumphrey did kill Mike Pepitone. And then maybe there were a handful of attacks and murders that just happened to be carried out in a similar fashion. Axes were extremely common household tools at the time, after all. At this point, over a hundred years later, it is unlikely that we will ever get any closer to finding the true identity of the Axeman of New Orleans. With little physical evidence left at the scenes, the poor documentation of the time, and no recent breaks to work off of, all we have now is speculation. Well, speculation, and the truly fascinating story of the murderous, jazz-loving X-Men. Alright everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. As always, thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up with what's going on in the world of Simply Strange, 
Be sure to give the show a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and or Facebook. Just search Simply Strange and you'll find it. Although, I don't post that much. But I'm going to try to work on that uh, soon, probably. Also, I would like to extend a huge thank you to Amanda, our newest supporter over on Patreon. Thank you, Amanda. I really do appreciate the support. If anyone else would like to help support the show, feel free to check out the Patreon page at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Simply Strange. Everything you give goes back into the show to cover things like hosting the podcast, hosting the website, advertising, and you can also buy shirts and coffee mugs at simplystrangepodcast.com slash merch if such things are of interest to you. Anyway, that's it. Thanks everyone for listening. Simply Strange will be back next month on the 26th. And until then, have a wonderful life and don't forget to jazz it out.